Welcome to the Voices of Aging podcast, where you learn more about aging through experts. We are the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group, or ASIC, a student-led collaborative organization for the study of aging at the University of Minnesota. Every episode, we feature guests working in different aging-related areas, and they share their experiences and wisdom. We release two episodes every month, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in to learn more about aging every time you hit play. This is Madeline with the Voices of Aging podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Rebecca Thoman. Dr. Thoman is a family medicine physician and the campaign manager for Doctors for Dignity. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, hi. Thanks for inviting me. So I know I kind of gave you a very brief introduction there, but um, tell us more about yourself, your training. How did you end up where you are now? Well, I am trained in family medicine, um, but I don't have a clinical practice and haven't for a number of years. In fact, for the last two decades, I've been actually working in the field of advocacy for healthcare and public health policy change, such as tobacco control, gun violence prevention, access to care. And so for the last seven years, I've been with Compassion and Choices working on end-of-life care. Tell us more about Compassion and Choices. What is it and how does your role within Doctors for Dignity fit within it? So Compassion and Choices is a national nonprofit. We're the oldest national nonprofit um, whose mission is to improve care, expand choice, and empower people to chart their end-of-life journey. Uh, we work in a number of areas. We ha- do a lot of education. We've created a lot of materials. Uh, we have a legal department, an advocacy department, and we're also focused on disparities, end-of-life disparities. So Doctors for Dignity is really just a community initiative within Compassion and Choices that brings together physicians who are motivated by our mission and support uh, achieving the goals in, in three basic buckets. The first one is medical aid in dying which is the practice that's modeled after the Oregon Death with Dignity Law, which I know we're going to talk a little bit more about. So getting physicians engaged in understanding it, educating their peers, advocating for it if they support it, and especially bringing new awareness into the medical societies to which they belong. The next bucket is voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, or VSED, and dementia. And in this, we're really trying to get people to start thinking about and planning for a dementia diagnosis. It's really the thing that I get the most questions about from people as they talk about end of life. They're very frightened about dementia and what that looks like, especially if they've had some experience in their own family. And so we've created some tools to help people start thinking about and talking about how does a dementia, how does Alzheimer's disease, for example, progress? What are you likely to encounter? And what level of care might you want at the various stages of the disease? And if you think about that in advance, do a lot of talking about it and documenting, that's the best chance you have of actually having um, a limited experience with uh, a a dementia diagnosis. And then the third bucket is end-of-life disparities. So we know that, for example, Black patients suffer more at the end of life. They're much less likely to use hospice or palliative care they're much less likely to have an advanced directive. 
much less likely to get adequate pain control and more likely to be have invasive procedures. So many factors that um, have an impact on that. So we work in the African-American, the Latino, the Native Hispanic, and I'm sorry, African-American community, as well as GLBTQ and other sort of groups that have been historically marginalized and trying to really meet them where they're at to talk about what is hospice? What is the goal of hospice? Because there's so much negative association with hospice as a a place you send your loved ones to die. So we're trying to talk about hospice care as, you know, a whole um, a whole series of interdisciplinary clinicians who come together to support the patient's goals of care and support the family and their spiritual care. So we're working in various communities to increase the education awareness, as well as with clinicians to try to get them to become more aware uh, and referring their patients for hospice a little bit earlier and encouraging some of those planning conversations. So we do a lot of things. Um, here in Minnesota, I'm focused a lot on the medical aid and dying work that we're doing to try to pass the end of life options act. Great. And, you know, it really sounds like this is the center of the work that you're talking about. And this is a a big question, but what are some ways or strategies, things you're thinking about um, in terms of empowering more people to think about end of life issues and how they want the death and dying process to look for them? Well, you know, I think more and more as our society is aging, more of us are actually having an experience with a loved one who's going through the dying process. But by and large, people are really divorced from the process. They have a lot of ideas about it, maybe through media. But when it comes down to the actual experience, I think there are a lot of unknowns. And that's why it's so important for those of us who are working in the medical profession and the clinical fields to be able to talk about what does dying really look like so that patients have a better understanding of what's coming for them. Um, I think we have a lot of disincentive to talk about death. We have our own sort of personal discomfort with it. But also through our medical training, death is the enemy. I mean, what we're trying to do is keep people alive no matter what. And so trying to reframe that into understanding that death is kind of a natural part of life and medicine has a role in helping people have a positive experience at the end of life um, are are places that we need to start. So I say sort of look to ourselves and see how we can't do a better job of being real about death and the acceptance of death. So we can move our culture away from denying death to understanding and accepting it. Uh, Of course, there's also, you know, the reality of payment structures, which encourage more aggressive care and don't necessarily incentivize palliative care or hospice care. So uh, advocating for changes in these medical systems, uh, payment structures is also an important part of what we can do. That's so interesting. Being in medical training myself, I hadn't quite thought of it that way that, you know, death is the ultimate thing that we're trying to avoid, but it's so true. We're making all kinds of interventions. And when we reach the point when we talk about how maybe nothing else can be done, it's almost viewed as a failure or something that's difficult to accept. So I appreciate your perspective. If I could, if I could just chime in on that, because I I think, um, I'm trying to remember who, where I first heard this statement, but this palliative care physician said there's always something that we can do. 
there's always something we can do, but that our focus is now on providing comfort and support and quality of life rather than trying to end the disease or cure the disease. So there's always, we never say there's nothing more we can do. There's always more we can do. It's just that we need to shift our focus on what is the goal at this point in the patient's uh, trajectory. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. So you mentioned that your focus here in Minnesota is medical aid in dying. Talk a little bit about what that is and why is it so important? So medical aid in dying is the legal term that's in the statutes that describes a very specific clinical practice. People immediately think of death with dignity because that's the name of the Oregon law that in fact was the first law to authorize medical aid in dying. And so it is a clinical practice where a terminally ill adult who has a six month or less prognosis and has full capacity to make their own healthcare decisions can ask for and receive a medication that they can then self-ingest for a peaceful death if they decide their suffering becomes too great. So it's not euthanasia. There are no injections. Um, and this would not apply to people who are compromised, such as those with dementia. So they're really these really are for people who have the ability to make their own decisions uh, competently. And that would be, for example, cancer patients often at the end of life who may be suffering. And in fact, that's the group that most often uses medical aid in dying. Um, the other group are patients with ALS or other neurodegenerative disorders, where the trajectory of the disease is fairly clear. There comes a point where we know this patient is going to die. And so that medical aid in dying provides them an option. Um, in Minnesota, for example, it's not available. It's actually a crime for a physician to assist a patient by giving them a prescription. Um, but people can voluntarily stop eating and drinking. And that's what that's an option that is legal everywhere, and people can choose that. It's more difficult. It can take seven to 10 days, and the patient is essentially dehydrating themselves. Um, with, with the proper medical support and care, it doesn't necessarily have to be painful. I mean, the patient can be kept comfortable. However, it's difficult on families to watch that. So medical aid in dying would be an alternative to that for patients who are done, their disease is going to end their life, they're suffering, um, and they want a peaceful death. So this is, this is sort of the whole philosophy. And it changes the way we think about dying by putting the individual patient's decisions at the center. So it, it really does force us to say, what does the patient want? Let them lead their decisions and their care. Um, 10 states now have authorized medical aid in dying, as well as D.C., uh, Oregon was the first, and Oregon has had the law in place for 23 years. So we have a lot of good data and experience showing that the laws really do work as designed. There are also some protections and structure within the practice, such as two separate clinicians, and most places it's physicians, have to totally assess the patient, offer them all the alternatives, offer them um, a referral to hospice. Really, we want people to be in hospice care. And the majority of people who use medical aid in dying are enrolled in hospice care. That's the gold standard. Um, and we want people to be in hospice care. We want them to know all of their alternatives. We want to be sure they have full volition. 
that they're not being influenced by any other outside person or entity. And they have to go through that process twice with two separate doctors to confirm. And if there's any question about whether or not they have full decision-making capacity, then a mental health assessment would be called in for another evaluation. So those are so th- those are all the hoops that that somebody has to get through, and they're really put there in place to assure this sort of protective blanket around the patient to be sure that it's really what they want. They're acting on their own. They're capable of doing this, and that the procedure is appropriate to their disease and their position. So, and you know, we found that it it's not used a lot. It's actually used fairly infrequently. So I think in, I'm going to guess, I don't have the fingers at my numbers at my fingers tip, but in the 23 years that this has been available in Oregon, something like 3000 patients have actually ingested the medication. And that's, uh, and then another third, and then about another thousand have received a medication or qualified, but not ingested the medication. So uh, I think that really points to the fact that having this available as sort of a back drop plan B allows people to feel less anxiety, less stress. They have a sense of control. They know they have a way out if things get too bad. And in some ways that improves their quality of life for the time they have left. We have really found that as well as um, after the laws pass, we find sort of a different, a shift in the attitude toward death where there's a lot more open conversations a lot more questioning and actually uptake of hospice and palliative care. So Oregon has the best hospice care in the entire country. And I don't think it's, um, I think, don't think it's coincidental that this law has also been in place for a while. So we know that there are some general benefits um, and really no, no, no evidence of any sort of misuse. I know that's a fear that a lot of people have suggested that oh, this is going to be used against against poor people or minorities or disabilities. And none of that has come to pass. We have now probably over 60 years of data, I believe, from all the states uh, combined that shows that that just is not what's happening. Our, our medical community is using medical aid in dying uh, judiciously, appropriately. And um, I think we have all the data confirms that. When we think about expanding um, legal access to a medical aid in dying, specifically in Minnesota, what does that process look like? Is there like policy work or I know, I think you mentioned essential act. What, yeah, just tell us more about that. Yeah. So in, in every state, three of the states that have the law passed it by a ballot initiative where it came from the people. Uh, Minnesota does not have a ballot initiative process here. So we depend on this coming through our legislature. And actually, it's it's a benefit coming through the legislature because they can write a bill with some of these very specific uh, safeguards in place and criteria. So that's the way that most states now have passed the law. Legislature has developed um, a bill. And in Minnesota, it's called the End of Life Option Act. And it lays out all the criteria, all the definitions of who can participate, um, legal protections for for clinicians who um, participate and also very clearly says that no one is forced to participate. So any conscientious objector, a doctor, a nurse, a pharmacist, anybody who doesn't want to participate does not have to. And so they have that protection as well. So the bill is, it's been actually was first introduced here in Minnesota in 2015. It's had a couple of hearings over the years 
but hasn't had really uh, an opportunity to move forward, which we're hoping that it will have this year. <clears throat> the bill would have to be passed in both the House and Senate and go through all the process and eventually be signed by the governor before it would take effect. And that's the process. So if people are supportive of this, either individuals, um, especially folks in the medical community, you can get involved by getting engaged with Compassion and Choices and our efforts to reach out. We're trying to educate lawmakers and we're trying to show that the public really does support this. We know that nationally support levels are 68%. Um, in every state where we have done surveys, a majority support. In Minnesota, it's 68%. Um, even among physicians, surveys have shown that majority of doctors support access to medical aid and dying. So I think getting, getting that information to lawmakers, as well as debunking some of the myths because the problem starting, um, we don't start at ground zero. We're actually starting in the negative column because there's a lot of misinformation out there. The term assisted suicide is thrown around and that makes people fearful. Um, it brings up the idea of a mental illness or uh, a sin or a crime. And so, um, in fact, medical aid and dying is nothing like suicide or assisted suicide. But those connotations are, are things that we have to really work at to try to educate lawmakers. Um, there's, you know, people outside medicine think, well, you get a diagnosis of cancer, you walk in, you get the pill, you go home, you kill yourself. <clears throat> we all know that's not how it works. But kind of having to paint the picture of what really happens in the clinic, in the office, in the hospital is part of what we need to do. And that really has to come from medical people nurses, um, volunteers, pharmacists who have an understanding of what that really looks like so that we can reduce the fears. And um, we can say, you know, there's really been, this is what it's like when you're at the end of life. And this is the kind of person who would want this and here's how it would work. And I think that really alleviates some of the fearfulness. And that's a really important role that folks in the medical community can fill. You mentioned the Compassion and Choices website, so I'm assuming that's a great place to go for physicians or other healthcare workers who are um, looking for ways to educate themselves on sort of how to approach these conversations. Um, obviously, not directly about the possibility of medical aid and dying um, until that becomes legal, um, but just about hospice, palliative care, what the death and dying process can look like. What other suggestions or resources do you have? Well, for physicians, there's a very well-known uh, group called Vital Talk. I don't know if you've heard of that, but they can do extensive training on helping clinicians feel comfortable and have the practice and the language to engage in some of these critical conversations for people with chronic disease, how to talk about uh, prognosis, life expectancy, goals of care. It's a really great um, organization. And then we have some local resources here in Minnesota, the Minnesota Hospice and Palliative Care Network, um, MNHPC, and also at the national level, the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine. Those really are repositories for lots of clinical education on medical, uh, not just medical aid and dying, but on hospice, palliative care, POLST, advanced care planning. And so there really are a lot of resources out there. Um, Compassion and Choices and some of the other groups like Honoring Choices Minnesota have been more directed at 
individuals. We're talking to the public, trying to encourage folks to think about end of life, talk about it with their loved ones, and start making some plans. I know that there, you know, we've been doing advanced care planning for a while now. Have found some of the some of the bumps in the road, which are a little bit too much emphasis on filling out a document and not enough emphasis on talking with your family and loved ones. So I always say to people, do not go to a lawyer. You don't need a lawyer to do your advanced care directive. In fact, it's probably counterproductive. Um, the most important thing is that you talk with your family about what you want and that you choose an agent who can speak for you when you can no longer speak for yourself. Naming that agent, having an agent who will advocate for you and having them available and accessible um, would be really important. Another piece of legislation in Minnesota now actually is a study um, on a post registry. So in other states, Oregon, for example, you can put your post online. And so if it's needed, an emergency medical team can go onto the website and find your post orders. And so the post is the physician order for life-sustaining treatment, which is a direct medical order on care in an emergency situation. And it's for people who would uh, often who are in nursing homes or fragile or vulnerable or for whom death may not be uh, unexpected. And so having that post form can really help us intervene before there is uh, an unwanted attempt at life-sustaining treatment, for example. So there's more and more effort to try to improve that communication, but it's going to really come down to the individuals talking with their families so their loved ones know what they want and talking with an agent. Um, because an advanced directive is not, it's not making decisions now for the future, but it's providing information to the person who in the future is going to make health decisions for you, which is a, a distinction. It's, it's, it's really a distinction because you can't know what's coming in the future, um, but you want to empower your advocate with as much knowledge as possible so that they, with your clinical team, can make the right decisions that reflect what you would want and what your values are. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that because I think there are a lot of misconceptions around what PULST is, what advanced directives are, how they're used, but I really like the approach that you're talking about of just prioritizing conversations with your loved ones. Um, I think that's the key. Yes. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, we've learned so much and I know our listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. I just wanted to provide an opportunity for you to share any plugs that you might have or um, just suggestions for what people can do to learn more, um, opportunities that might exist in the community. Well, in addition to the resources that I named, I think, uh, you know, go to our website, compassionandchoices.org. Um, and if you're interested in getting involved with supporting the End of Life Option Act, you can sign up there to become part of our team. And really, this is all about reaching out, educating ourselves, educating our lawmakers, and showing them that there is public support for this important end-of-life option. And so I welcome, I welcome you all to, to get engaged. Perfect. Thank you again so much for joining me. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been great. This podcast is brought to you by ASIC.
the Aging Studies Interdisciplinary Group at the University of Minnesota. Follow Voices of the Aging and ASIC on social media for more information about the episodes and guests on the podcast and to know more about us as a student group. See you next time.